Hey friends, welcome back to It Takes a Village, a podcast of Healing Hands International. My name is Mark Gent. Uh, we are into season three now. We're excited today to welcome my friend Dr. Lee Camp onto this episode. He is a professor of theology and ethics at Lipscomb University, and he's also known as the founder and creator uh, extraordinaire of The Token Show which is just an amazing uh, work of his that has been going on now for about 14 years that we will get into and we'll tell you all about if uh, you're just hearing about it for the first time. So thanks for tuning in and to this episode. And here is my conversation with Lee Kemp. Welcome to It Takes a Village podcast. Lee Kemp. Mark Jett. Leland. Marcus. <laughs> uh, we've known each other for a few minutes, but hey, you are the professional podcaster, teacher, speaker, and I'm feeling a little intimidated. Well, I think you should get out more if you're feeling intimidated <laughs> here today, Mark. <laughs> oh, but thankfully, we're just friends today having a conversation, and we have known, like I said a minute ago, we've known each other a few minutes. For all, yeah, a long time. A long I mean, time. <clears throat> 20 I plus remember. years. Yes, because I started... I'm in my 24th year of teaching at Lipscomb, and you probably started, what, 20 years ago when you came? Uh-huh, 03. Yeah. yeah, I was a student at the beginning of your time, but I didn't have you in class, but yeah. then started there on 03, and we were colleagues together yes. for several years there in the College of Bible and Ministry. Yep. A lot of good folks on the second floor of Ezel. Indeed. So, hey, thanks for accepting our invitation to come be a guest. Glad to be here. Uh, we will have no shortage of conversation today as we um, dive into Lee Camp and everything that you have your hands. But just to give you a little background, so we launched the podcast summer of 2021. Uh, for those of you who are listening for the first time, uh, we're now in season three. Uh, we're 20-something episodes in. So if you are just now tuning in, you can go back and listen to those. But our goal is to focus on international partners, church leaders, nonprofit executives, and we tell the story about healing hands here. But Lee, you're a very unique gentleman in a lot of ways. <laughs> I've been called worse. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but here, uh, for the purpose of this podcast, you wear different hats. You're, um, you wear, kind of wear the church leader hat that we go for, author, speaker, educator, and we're just kind of creating new categories for you as we go. Podcast, <laughs> podcaster, um, live event show storyteller. All right, so let's get to know Lee personally a little bit. You're married to Laura. I am. We've been married, let's see, since 1990, so with October will be 32 years. How'd you guys meet? We met at Lipscomb. Um, I was a junior. She was a freshman, and uh, we met on campus, and Love life flourished, and one thing led to another. There you go. And Laura works at Salome Health. She does. She's a COO there, and she's been there six-plus six years, I think, seven years maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's another organization that does a lot of beautiful work that aligns with a similar kinds of work, different different niches, but uh, similar work with what Healing Hands does. That's true. Yeah, they have a great organization, and we appreciate you and Laura. You guys have been friends and supporters of Healing Hands for years. Yes, I've, I've admired uh, Healing Hands for a long time, ever since uh, uh, one of your founders over there was one of my colleagues for a long time. And so Dr. Always, Randy Steger. Yeah, I always yeah. would listen to Randy talk about the good work you all are doing. And so have admired it a long time. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. Y'all got three grown boys, Chandler, David, and Ben. Yes. 
Chandler's 27. He lives in New York City now. Uh, Ben's, uh, David's 25, and uh, he lives here in Nashville. And he and his brother Ben, our 22-year-old, David and Ben both graduated from Lipscomb in May. Chandler went to Pepperdine. Younger two went to Lipscomb. Just graduated in May. Uh-huh. So raising three boys, what did the camp family do for fun and adventures? What were some of your rhythms? Yeah. What are things now that you're looking back on those years that you look back fondly on? Yeah. Well, um, I would say so far as rhythms, uh, we, we read to the boys a lot. I mean, some of my finest memories, for example, are um, reading through The Hobbit, I don't know, about five, six, seven times with the boys or reading through the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And so lots of, and Laura did lots and lots of reading to him as well. That was one of our regular rhythms. Uh, we ate meals together uh, pretty regularly and uh, that I'm thankful for all that time. We, uh, we played games together a lot and, and we still do when, the, when they'll come back and we've got our regular games we'll play together. That's a lot of fun. And then we had, thanks to um, Lipscomb and then just family vacations, we got to travel to a lot of interesting places together. So, you know, we have very fond memories of when the boys were young, 10, 8, and 5, spending a summer together in um, London, for example, mm. or um, got to do Santiago, Chile for a semester a few years ago, and um, or doing another London, England, Scotland trip with a couple of the boys uh, about 10 years ago. So that plus family vacations, so getting to travel and be in unique places with the boys was always a, a grand adventure. A few years ago in uh, August of 2018, I remember seeing on social media you had written a blog post that uh, it was titled, I sat on his bed and wept. <laughs> And yeah. uh, it was a lament of sorts to your youngest son, Ben, as he went off to college. And you just so beautifully articulated what most parents feel when their kids go off to college. Uh, you gave a great timeline of all your ER visits yeah. <laughs> and how the doctors at Vanderbilt came to know you by name. Yes. yes. Uh, but I'll tell you, when I read that, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a parent of younger kids. And, but it really hit me. And I, I mean, I remember, I think like dust started flying around the room and I found my <laughs> eyes getting watery and, um, I actually had it saved as a tab on my phone mm. for a long time. Mm. And it just really hit home. Um, uh, and w a couple of things that I went back and looked at it that I want to get your, your take on now, just when you started, you said, it does not matter that my youngest son is now on the same university campus where I'm a professor or that his dormitory is one mile from our home. Saturday before last, after Laura and I moved him in with his best friend, I went home, sat on his bed in his now empty bedroom, and wept. The house is much quieter. Even Otis the dog seems melancholy. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are moving times. And, um, yeah, I remember that day very, very well of, sitting there and, and weeping. And um, not too long ago, I had COVID, and so I was isolated for a good while. And um, a friend of mine had uh, loaned me kind of a permanent long-term loan, a manual typewriter. And he said, I think you might like typing on a manual typewriter. So sure enough, I've found I really enjoy it. Wow. And so I started writing letters to people because it's, I don't know, it's just fun for me to write letters to people on manual typewriter. And, um, and this was actually in that same room where I had sat on the bed and wept, but I started thinking about people I wanted to write letters to, and I decided to write a letter to Harold Hazel, but she probably just only got it here in the last week or so, but 
And so Harold Hazlip, for those of you who don't know, was president of Lipscomb when I was an undergrad. And I told him, I expressed thanks for a lot of the things that he did and the ways um, his work and my time at Lipscomb as an undergrad was a huge gift to me and a blessing to me. But I told him, uh, among many things, that one of the things I remembered about him was that he once did this chapel talk. And of all the hundreds of chapels I would have gone to in those years, you know, I don't really remember many Mm -hmm. chapel talks, but I remember one he did where he said, life gets harder and harder and better and better. Mm -hmm. And that was his recurring motif, harder and harder and better and better. And I knew sitting there as a college student that I didn't quite know all the implications of that phrase, but it was like one of those that sticks with you and you think, I think that's really important, and I think one of these days I'll understand exactly what that means. And raising kids has been one of those things that um, as we grow in love and the depth of relationship, um, that's what makes it also harder and mm-hmm. harder, right? You know, the, the greater the love, the greater the pain and loss or the greater the pain in transition. And so I think that was one of those things that day that even though I sat there on that bed and, and wept, it was one of those signs that this is what it means to live a good life is to have a sort of love for, uh, to have the gift of being able to have a relationship in which you love a child, love a spouse, love a friend, such that uh, it brings you to tears sometimes. It does, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and you ended it by saying, but oh, how I shall miss this boy and his brothers living in our house. Their daily joys and struggles our own. And yet, of course, my tears are tempered by my joy as I watch them make their way in the world, praying for God's mercies that they shall be men fully alive. And that's the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's my... that. It's an allusion to my favorite quote from the early church father, Irenaeus, who used to say, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that's one of the things the boys and my students have heard me say a lot through the years is that, you know, at our best, we go out, and that's the invitation, I think, of the gospel, is that you learn to be fully alive. And it's that liberation of our true selves that God desires for us. And uh, we thereby get to be the glory of God. But I've watched my boys... um, you know, they've like like all people, they've had their struggles. They do have their struggles. Uh, they've had their, even their some of their tragedies. Um, but to to watch them keep making their way in the world, so it's a great joy. Well, and frightening. There's you know, raising kids is a scary thing in today's world. You know, yeah. But a wonderful thing to get to do. Well, if you are listening to this and you want to read that, we're going to link to it in our show notes, or you can just go Google Lee Camp. Um, I sat on his bed and wept, and it's the first thing that pops up, mm. shockingly. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that really impacted me. I mean, that impacted yeah, me then. It continues. I continue to think about it now, just in raising kids at 10, almost 12, and 14. So yeah. from one dad to another, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, But as a dad of three boys, and you just touched on this a little bit as far as uh, where you are at this stage, but what advice would you have? in raising boys in 2022, mm. or, or just kids in general for that matter? Yeah. Well, uh, that makes me think of two occasions where I asked other people when I was uh, early in childhood, uh, early in child rearing, I asked, um, I grew up in Alabama, and um, so we were back in, back home and eating at Tebow's, which was the meat and three <laughs> restaurant downtown in our little town, and um so that day, my cousin Jeffrey was there, and Jeffrey's, I don't know, eight years, ten years older than me. 
And um, so I think, I think Laura was pregnant with our first. And Jeffrey had gotten up from lunch and was leaving to go back to work. And I said, Jeffrey, you got any advice for somebody about to be a new parent? And he, he laughed. He said, no, no. He said, I don't have any advice. And then he paused and he said, well, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, things will get broken. <laughs> <laughs> and so Laura and I have laughed so much through the years of, you know, <laughs> things get broken. And the, the more um, I could accept things get broken, things get lost, it's expensive, it's hard, it's difficult, things get broken. That's, that's pretty, pretty great advice, yeah. you know, just an acceptance of the challenge of it. Um, and then a second thing that comes to mind is probably my first year of teaching at Lipscomb, so the, uh, the boys would have been five, three, and a newborn. Uh, there was a theologian visiting here in town for a weekend conference and uh, that I, I liked his work, and I knew he was a parent of several daughters. And I said, um, so you got any advice for raising kids and a parent of young kids? And he said, yeah, I do. He said, uh, I would suggest to you to always remember um, that uh, God will provide for them what they need when they're ready. Mm. And um, so I think that the, the sense of learning to let go of control, you know, as a parent, it's always difficult because one of the things that we learn from like people in recovery and people in co-addiction is that one of the big one of the big things that contributes to a, an addictive dynamic in a family is when one person is overly controlling of the other person. That's the way a mm-hmm. family oftentimes contributes to the addiction of another person. And so, letting go of our illusion of control. I, mean, I think we parents have a serious illusion of control. And so letting go of the illusion of control on the one hand, while also being very proactive about what you can contribute to the good and the flourishing, the possibilities of flourishing of your kid. And that's a tricky thing to try to figure out, you know, when, when, are you, when am I being controlling? Um, when am I not letting my child experience something through the hard knocks of life? When am I not willing to let my kid make a bad choice and experience the consequences that I ought to just let go? And when do I need to be really proactive? Um, and speak into a situation or draw a boundary. And that's hard. That's, that's hard work. I just think uh, comes from experience, messing up. And the last thing I'll say real quick about parenting that was, has been really helpful to me, I'm a recovering perfectionist. I'm a recovering legalist. I'm a recovering um, works righteousness kind of person in my childhood church experience that I've worked a lot harder the years to let go of. Um, and so with all of that kind of perfectionism, uh, as a parent, you can beat yourself up really badly. And so years ago, Laura and I were in some uh, marriage counseling at the time, working through a number of different issues. And one day, the uh, counselor said to us, she said, she said, I want to encourage you to remember the 85% rule. And I said, what's that? And she said, if in your parenting you do it right 85% of the time, that's good enough. Hmm. And she said... The 15% of the time you screw up allows two things to happen. One, it allows your child to learn. They don't have to be perfect. 
And two, it allows you the space to learn how to apologize to your kid. And, you know, I felt like that was, a, a, that was, has been a golden nugget to us, of that mm-hmm. 85% rule. Because, you know, Laura and I have worked hard at trying to say, how do we let go of our perfectionism, still show up for our kids, um, but not weigh them down with the perfectionism, and also really how to say, I'm sorry to your kids. And I see sometimes parents who can't say I'm sorry to their kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a painful thing for a kid mm-hmm. not to have a parent who can say, I'm sorry, I messed up, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so anyway, that, that was helpful to us. It mm-hmm. may or may not be helpful to others, but it's been helpful to us. That reminds me, just the other day I was talking to Brooklyn, our oldest, and she's 14. And just a beautiful kid inside and out. But uh, we were having a moment, and I said, Brooklyn, um, this is the first time you've been 14. And this is the first time I've raised a 14 year old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to walk through this together. Yeah. And um, it's so true. Like, yeah. you can read all the books you want to, but until you um, walk through it. Right. So you and Laura go to Otter Creek Church. We do. You've been yeah. there for a while. You serve as a shepherd. Yeah. Uh, you teach a lot of Bible class on Sunday mornings. And the thing that's not lost on me is you, I have a lot of friends who go to Otter Creek and they rave about going to your Bible classes. Like, they love it. And then I just think, wow, people pay good money to sit at your feet. <laughs> or you can go to Otter Creek and you can hear Lee Camp for free. So uh, Otter or, Creek or, Church. Or, or I need to do a better job of figuring out how to get people to pay me directly. <laughs> Collection plate <laughs> as you walk right. in Bible class. Here you go. Uh, yeah, your Otter Creek Church family. You've been there for a while. Yeah, we when we came to Nashville in '99, I, uh, Laura and I went out to, and our boys were at, are at Donaldson Church of Christ for three years, maybe. And I was a preaching minister there for two and a half of those years, and a lot of wonderful, lovely, beautiful people out at Donaldson. And then um, we came to um, Otter Creek, probably I don't know, 21 years ago or so, something like that. And uh, so yeah, we've raised boys there and. Have a lot of beautiful friends there, wonderful friends. Mm-hmm. Our president, Art Woods, goes yes, theirs as well. Indeed, yeah. All right, Lipscomb University. Yes. Where you went as a student, graduated yep. in 89. You yes. majored in computer science. Um, 24th year of teaching yep. in the College of Bible and Ministry. So have you thought about you're actually in your, I mean, it's 24 years, but you're actually in your fourth decade of teaching. Has that hit you? Four, I am not in my 90s, fourth decade. 90s, 2000s. 2010s, that's 2020s. That's cheap, yes. Mark. That's Fourth cheap. Decade. Just because I got one <laughs> semester in the last of the 90s. Ouch. You have taught in four different decades. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, 24 years, you're you're, uh, you're you're getting on up. I mean, antique. I know. I don't like the parts. fact that I'm kind of one of the old timers now. Um, no, but you're not. You are so good at what you do. Uh, I, do I do sometimes, I will, I will confess that, and some people won't be who know me won't be surprised to hear me say this, but I do sometimes find myself just kind of irritable, you know, because you, you you think about sometimes you look at some of those older older professors and you think you're just kind of cranky, and so, sometimes I'm realizing <laughs> I have to beat back my crankiness, you know, think, don't that, Lee, don't be a cranky old professor. You that know? will never be you. <laughs> that will never be you. Uh, so you're a professor of theology and ethics. And yes. an amazing one, I might add. Uh, you not only just teach, but you're known uh, really just to challenge your students to think differently, to see topics and issues through a different lens than maybe they walked in your classroom with. And um, you're really good at what you do. And you. I, I can say that with confidence. 
uh, just haven't had so many students that I knew over the years who had you in class. But going back to your major, mm-hmm. I mean, how did a guy who's a computer science major end up as a professor, a theologian, um, an author? Uh, what what started you down the path? Yeah, yeah. So um, when I was in high school, I loved math and science stuff, and um, I, you know, when I was a senior in high school, for example, I thought I might want to be a physicist, so I got somebody to. <laughs> I wrote someone that I knew through a church connection that knew somebody at the Department of Energy and weaseled my way into spending a day at Oak Ridge because I thought I might want to do physics. There you, go. you know, So learning about uh, nuclear energy and things of that sort. And so I was just always fascinated with the sciences and um, maybe, you know, as a lot of young people want to do, you know, maybe thought I wanted to be an astronaut and always fascinated with that sort of stuff. So... Fascinated with the sciences, came in as an engineering student, transferred to computer science, and um, but I had had a you know we Church of Christ people we're not big on mystical experiences, and and I'm, <laughs> I'm still pretty rationalistic, and um, but I've had a few kind of mystical experiences in my life, and one of them was when I was young, and as I recollect, this was before my baptism, and um. um and one day I was at, at my house, and I just had this sort of sense of voca- calling, I guess, in which I had this sort of overwhelming sense of that I was supposed to do some sort of preaching or teaching. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, I was, you know, I was a pretty compliant, uh, sweet kid who, you know, I became the the more irritable, sometimes bothersome person as I got into my twenties and thirties, but. Um, I remember going and getting a piece of paper and just writing down, I will obey. And I folded that up. And I wish I had that piece of paper. I don't know where it, what happened to it, but I folded it up and put it away. I will obey. So when I was in college, thinking about doing the science stuff, I kept going back to that kind of sense of calling to do uh, preaching and teaching. And I, I want to be very, very clear about the fact that I'm not suggesting that... Um, there's a class of vocations, and one can't very much do the will of God as a physicist. I very mm-hmm. much believe one can uh, in beautiful ways, and has happened in beautiful, wonderful ways. And you know, some of the greatest scientists in the history of the Western world have been um, devout Christians, uh, even priests and theologians. Um, but for me, my sense of calling was something along teaching and preaching. And so I had kind of tried to squelched that, I think. And so between my junior and senior year in college, I revisited that question and went through a period of discernment. And by the time I got done with my summer going into my senior year, I thought that this was the thing I was supposed to do. And so I went on and finished my degree. I also, I minored in math and also minored in Greek and I minored in biblical studies. And so you just kept adding them. So I just kept adding them. And, um, but knowing that I wanted to go yeah. to seminary, you know, when I got out. So I went to seminary. Then when I went to seminary, I started discovering certain particular sets of questions that um, classically came from the field of Christian ethics. And so then I decided I'd, I would see if I could yeah. get into a Ph.D. program and applied to four, got into two, and um, went and did that. And, and so, you know, kind of once you, once you do the Ph.D. route, you— you're, you're, you're kind of committed to teaching yeah. if you can get a teaching job. And yeah. so one thing led to another. And, um, 
You got to come back to the alma got to mater. Come, got to come back to the alma mater. Yeah. yeah. So tell us how has being a college professor changed over the past two decades? Uh, boy, it's changed a lot. Um, the Certainly we're continuing to see the way in which technology for good and for ill, and, and it's a lot for ill, um, affects community. Um, so when I was first teaching in college, you'd have a lot of people come by the office, a lot of students come by the office and sit and talk, and that doesn't happen much anymore. Mm. Um, and the ease of access through uh, emails and so forth inhibits, I think, personal face-to-face relationships. Mm. So that's one, that's one way. Um, I think one of the lovely things about it is that uh, th- that's also hard sometimes is that when I started in that first decade <laughs> of the late 90s, there was still a pretty high, um, um, how do you think about it? There was a, there was a sort of, um, I guess, I guess there's sort of pedestal given to a professor that maybe is not so much given mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. And that's both a good and a bad thing. I think I think the good thing about it these days is that there's a sort of um, democratization of the notion of, of ideas, which I think is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a sort of um, sense of peer learning uh, that's helpful. It's also there's also some challenges with that, um, but there are also some good things about it. And I'd say the last thing that we're especially noticing, and this is not a thing with regard to students as much as it's a trend in American culture and industrialized nations, is that there's lots and lots of studies that are showing that as we grow in wealth and as we grow in um, access to media, social media, and so forth, that the incident rate of depression, mental illness, and even suicide is continuing to rise. And uh, even so much so that the uh, life expectancy of uh, white males has decreased for the first time in like a century due yeah. to so-called deaths of despair. Yeah, your last guest on the podcast. Yes, that's perfect right. Example. And so um, we're seeing that and having to navigate that with 20-somethings in college because they're right in the thick of trying to navigate the challenging social cultural context that they're having to navigate. And so those are very real challenges mm-hmm. that young people are having to deal with. And um, and I don't frame that in terms of, well, they just need to be tougher. I don't think that's helpful at all. I think it's, no, we, we've created this culture uh, in which, for example, you have you know multi-billion dollar companies that know how to engineer stuff to kick dopamine into your brain that keep you, keep you going, keep you going, keep you going. Well, and, and we could multiply this by all the factors that contribute to reducing, cutting off social connection between people. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's serious cultural pressures that young people these days have to navigate that I didn't have to navigate when I was an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely experience that and see that in the thing. Well, the one last thing I'll mention really quickly, and this is I haven't seen any data on this, but anecdotally at least, one thing that I hear discussed is that because of the culture of shame that is precipitated by social media, by people taking videos on their phone, um, the conversation a lot of times is the ways in which students seem 
more reticent to say what they really think in a classroom than they used to be mm. because of fear of reprisals socially. Um, and so that's obviously a very challenging thing in college because what you're supposed to be able to do, in my mind, in any sort of education where the humanities is at the heart of it, is you're supposed to be able to take ideas and put them out there that ought to be challenging, that ought to be difficult, and the, the safety, so-called, ought not be safety from feeling uncomfortable. The safety ought to be, regardless of what you think about that issue, you should be respected as a human being. You, well, you, should, you should be welcome to be getting pushed back. You should be welcome to push back on other people's thoughts about it, mm -hmm. and you should welcome other people pushing back on you about it. Speak freely. Yeah, yeah. But, but the notion of being respected as a human being ought to be taken for granted. Um, but when you have these sorts of sharp reprisals that we see a lot of times, you know, that understandably can make people reticent to really say what they think about mm -hmm. something. And mm -hmm. so I think we have to, I mean, I taught a graduate class this past weekend, my first time to be with them this semester, and I spent a lot of time talking about uh, the notion of safety, even among graduate students, you know. We have to be safe to talk about the things that we think, think about this and do it very openly and doing it in a trustworthy fashion and honor the other person. Whereas I don't think you had to do that quite as much 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. What about um, what invigorates you? What do you enjoy? Still? In teaching? Mm -hmm. um, there's something very um, wonderful about the intimacy of teaching and because there's, um, at its best, teaching is especially when you're teaching theology, and especially you know, when I'm teaching ethics classes, um, ethics prior to the Enlightenment was focused on, the, the discipline of ethics prior to the Enlightenment was focused on the question of what makes life worth living and what, is a, what does it mean to live a good life. And so when you get to have these long sorts of forays into asking what does it mean to live a good life, and you explore that with a group of people, that there's a sort of intimacy to that and a power to that that's beautiful to get to participate in. And that really, that really gets me stoked. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, too, it, after having it done this many years, it's, still, it's sometimes hard to say, can I do this one more semester mm. you know, and bring my real true self into this? That's, mm -hmm. It's hard. Um, but nonetheless, once I get into that space, it's a beautiful, wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that, and um, so many great minds there on that hallway of people that uh, I love. I mean, I've, I've been blessed to have so many wonderful colleagues students. and so many smart colleagues and good-hearted mm -hmm. colleagues, and, mm -hmm. and all over campus. Yeah, yeah, all over campus. So let's transition that. I mean, it's still professionally, and you were able to um, work this in, into your job and with Lipscomb as the Token Show. Yeah. Yes, Token Show started back in 2008. Um, I remember so, that first show. Yeah. Uh, about 150 people there in Shamblin Theater. Beth yes. and I were sitting in the back. That's so great. And uh, I never will forget I didn't all. remember that. I walked away and I thought that was that was extra, that was really interesting. I've never been to anything like that before. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so it's been going 14 years now. Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to attempt to describe the okay. token show. And yeah. then uh, you, because some people are listening and their token show uh, season ticket holders, or they've been to shows, or they listen to the podcast, but it's a variety show about things that matter. Yeah. Right? I mean, and you say truth tellers, justice seekers, and those who do courageous acts of mercy. 
And it you, you combine music, theology, politics, comedy, and storytelling. Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, it's just a hodgepodge of all things that are awesome. So the token show live events and you with the occasional broadcast on radio or television. Uh, it is often on campus, uh, Lipscomb University, um, also the historic Ryman Auditorium. You have yeah. shows there often, but you've done remote locations in California and North Carolina and Texas. And, um, you know, I tell people that uh, who haven't been before that I'm trying to describe it to. So they, they are a lot of fun, but you have to prepare yourself to go for a concert, kind of. But then you leave having laughed a lot, you maybe have shed a tear, made to think critically about issues in theology, social justice, and politics. And that makes it hard to describe. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I, I kind of like, it just, I don't, um, it's a variety show. Go prepared for a concert and you're going to get, you're going to laugh, cry, and it's going to be thought provoking. <laughs> I like that description. Uh, yeah. how did, uh, if somebody who's listening never been to a show, what, what else, how would you describe it? What I leave yeah. out? No, I think that's great. I think that's a, that's a great description. Um, yeah, we, um, it's, some people will call it a Christian variety show, and I don't like that description, uh, and I, I'll, I'm glad that you didn't describe it that way, because I think in Nashville, especially, if you use Christian as an adjective on anything with regard to entertainment or musical genres or whatever, that immediately gives you some sort of particular notion of what this is, and that's not what we are. Yeah, it puts it in a box. Yeah, um, and so... You know, I'm a Christian, and I take my Christian faith has been the most formative commitment of my life, and it means it uh, it informs all of my work and all of my writing and, and entertaining and whatever. But um, it's a it's a show that is um, seeks to practice hospitality to whoever, all comers, uh, Christian, non-Christian, Muslims, agnostics, um, Buddhists, and so forth. But we're we're trying to explore topics. Um, and so a lot of times when I'm doing my commentary, I'm, I'm drawing upon my knowledge as somebody who does Christian theology, um, but trying to have conversations about important topics for our current setting and let whoever has something to contribute about that contribute about that, whether it's songwriters, authors, um, and so forth. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a wonderful, it's been a wonderful thing that I never imagined as an academic I'd get to do, Yeah. but it's been a great deal of fun. The yeah. only thing I would add is that um, we, we did start, we started our podcast in uh, the pandemic in May of 2020, and then by the end of 2020, we got a deal with Nashville Public Radio, so we started doing weekly broadcasts on Nashville Public Radio. Sunday afternoons? Yeah, Sunday afternoons, and I think they just added, they did just add Saturday evenings as well, so uh, you can pick us up on Nashville Public Radio Saturdays at 6, Sundays afternoon at 2, uh, every weekend as well. Oh, that's well. great. Yeah, so that's been going on for... Yeah. What almost two years now? Yeah. So where did the idea come from for tokens? And really, I mean, what what drove you to create something from nothing? Yeah. Uh, outside the realm of what your you know proverbial eight to five job was. Yeah. Well, uh, I had been listening to Garrison Keillor on Prairie Home Companion on public radio for a long time. So you know he started that he started that public that variety show back in 1974, I think it was, because he had come to Nashville to see the last performance of the Grand Ole Opry at the Ryman House before they moved out to Donaldson to the new Opry House, somewhere in the early 70s. And he wrote an article about his experience of seeing the Opry at the old Ryman. And so he got an idea. He said, why don't I try to do a variety show? So he goes back to Minnesota, and Minnesota Public Radio starts what becomes Prairie Home Companion. 
and he did that, you know, for decades. And so I had been listening to him through the years, and then in uh, New Year's Eve of 2006, Laura and I went down again to see Garrison's show at the Ryman that night, and uh, it was a New Year's Eve show that was on radio and public television. And, uh, you know, there was Old Crow Medicine Show, and Emily Harris, and Cowboy Jack Clement, and uh, Susie Bogus, and, um, and it was so much fun that um, I thought at the end, what, what if... What if we did something like this, but it was a theological variety show, yeah. <laughs> which sounds horrible. <laughs> but I thought, but it was one of those ideas that wouldn't let go, and it kept yeah. nagging at me. And so I was, a couple of my friends were teaching a Sunday school class on, on spirituality and creativity during that time, and one of them kept saying, "If you have an idea, you're afraid will fail. You ought to try it." Mm. And I thought, "Ah." So anything, wait, one thing led to another. Lots of folks came chimed in to help. And both financially and creatively, and so we started doing them in 2008. And yeah, it's it's been great fun. It's been great. So you've had on some just really great guests, artists, musicians, academics, authors, and I mean, not not to sit here and ask you like who's your favorite kid, yeah. <laughs> but 15 years later, who are, are who's a guest that stands out? Um, wow, I mean, so many. Um, I mean, you know, I. I I'm, I'm um, the of course in the music world we've gotten to have a lot of incredible musicians and both who are stars like the Ricky Skaggs and the Vince Gills types um, and then people who are not uh, well known names but they're but they're very celebrated as musicians and to see people like this who are just really good human beings. And they're really good at what they do. I've just loved watching that mm-hmm. experience. And I've seen time after time after time uh, these musicians and these uh, performers do this stuff that's just very moving to get to see. We've had um, poets. I mean, one of my favorite poets has been Naomi Shihab Nye. She's a Palestinian-American. And uh, I have watched. She's been on a, two of our shows. And... Um, um, and it's, it's fun to get to know some of these people that you can then text them or call them and, you know, and, and name on, name on, I'll communicate every now and then. Or to see very high-end academics like Kristen Dumay, who's uh, become a um, very well-known in the lecture writing world with her book, Jesus and John Wayne. Um, and people who are saying very pointed, sometimes difficult, profound things, uh, but they're fun human beings to get mm-hmm. to know. Um, so just so many, and I'm just really thankful to get to know the, these kind of folks and uh, to have really good conversations with them. Yeah, well, it, if um, anybody's listening and they want to find out more about it, you can go online. And yeah, tokenshow.com. We'd love for people to come out. We've got a, we've got, um, we'll have another couple of shows this fall. We'll maybe going back to the Ryman the Sunday night before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'd love for people to come down find and it on social us. media. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you met, referenced a minute ago the podcast that you started in May of 2020. Yes. Uh, Look, the other day you're 61 episodes in, and it's a fantastic podcast. You yeah, do a great you. job in it. But um, the the timing of the podcast debut intentional or coincidental? Uh, oh, we had, starting we, uh, just a couple of months after the pandemic. We had planned to start sometime in 2020, 2021, and then when the pandemic hit us, it gave us um, initiative, uh, precipitated moving that up pretty quickly. So, yeah. Yeah. And as you look at, at it, even the podcast, I mean, sometimes you have 
there's some crossover between um, the token show and the podcast, right? There it's is. been a little bit, but even in interviewing somebody at more full length interview on the podcast, have you ever found yourself sitting there across from somebody, you're on Zoom with somebody, and think, wow, I, I, I really can't believe I'm talking to this person. Like, this is somebody that um, I would not have thought would I would be talking to or accept my invitation. For sure. For sure. Yeah, and that's um, – that – is really my I love the live shows and I love getting to do them and I a lot of times I'm amazed that I get to do that kind of stuff and and uh, you know to to get to state something at the Ryman even if we've done it for more than a decade it's still a thrill still the Ryman it's still the Ryman and it's an amazing place but my particular sweet spot as a person is reading a good book and then having a conversation Mm. with the author and um, it's amazing the sorts of conversation and even if it's not an author someone who has a story to tell you know so I think for example about um, I got to listen to inter, uh, interview a former Nashville mayor Megan Berry about the, the death of her son by overdose mm-hmm. and uh, it's amazing to get to sit and receive a story like that um, or getting to talk to a lot of New York Times bestsellers about uh, best-selling authors about these major things that are happening in our culture both politically uh, culturally, scientifically, that we're learning. Uh, yeah, it's always amazing that I, I feel amazed and honored to get to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, so if anybody wants to find that, you can go to any podcast platform and yeah. find the Token Show. Yeah, I think it's just Tokens with Lee Camp. You can find it. The name of the podcast is It Takes a Village, and we like asking each one of our guests, um, just as you look back over your journey, uh, people who have walked with you through life and in community, um, who's been your village? Who've been yeah. some of those people who have shaped you, mentored you, discipled you, um, encouraged you, uh, challenged you? Yeah. Who, who would be some of those people? Yeah. Um, ones for Lee Camp. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, um, family is significant in all of that um, in, in such a profound way. I'm thankful for. Um, when I, I think back about my own formation, theologically and intellectually. Um, you know, my years at Lipscomb were significant with people like Harvey Floyd and Carl McKelvey, who mentored me, and Carl especially, who really poured a lot of time into me in ways that made a profound difference for my life. Um, professors in seminary days, professors in my PhD work, shaped me, challenged me in profound ways that have continued. And you know, one thing, and maybe this is one of the reasons I continue to like education, is that um, a lot of times in education, um, you can have a professor and not realize how profoundly they've shaped you until maybe 20 years later, and then you realize, oh my, I have been asking those questions that I learned 20 years ago, and I forgot that's where I learned that from, but it stuck with me. And so my professors at Abilene Christian at Seminary Days and Notre Dame for my PhD work um, so, so much. And then um, a generic category, but they know who they are, um, of just friends, um, who have traveled alongside me and have helped me, especially in very difficult times, and you know that I am just so thankful for. And that's another kind of one of those things that I don't think we talk enough about these days. And that is the if you look at somebody like Aristotle and Aquinas, they saw friendship as the most, or at least certainly among the most 
significant moral practices that human beings ever do is friendship. And um, so I think about the ways in which my friends have helped me and, um, you know, may, maybe kept me alive. Um, and so I'm profoundly grateful for those. And then the last category I would mention is that I, I kind of have laughed through the years about how I keep myself a short list of people that I want to be friends with in the resurrection. And those are typically <laughs> people that I know through their books, you know. And so um, I don't know if any of these people will like me, um, but I, I've been very thankful for them. So people like uh, Thomas Merton and um, Dorothy Day and um, people that whose writing has been so profound and so beautiful and so moving that uh, I look forward to, to being friends with in the resurrection. They will be friends with you. Yeah. <laughs> I know you well enough to know that they will be friends with you. Hey, friend, thanks for coming on. Grateful to be with you. Thanks we so much, We really, Mark, really appreciate it. So, And, and uh, I'm grateful for the work Healing Hands does and appreciate very much y'all's good work and witness in the world and pray all good and all blessings on you all. Do wish the best on you as you continue down the journey at Lipscomb and with tokens. Again, thank you. grateful that Lee stopped by and I love that conversation with him. He just had a lot of nuggets of wisdom and there'd be a whole lot to unpack there, but just a couple of things that stood out to me was one, just his honesty on parenting and raising three boys and how beautiful it is, but also how challenging and difficult it can be. And another topic was how the token show got started and how when the idea came to him back in 2006, the show didn't launch until like the spring of 2008. But in between that time, when he was wrestling with whether to do it or not and whether to pursue this wild hair, crazy idea of a variety show, somebody told him, hey, when you have an idea and you think about failure, you should try it. And he did. And here it is nearly 15 years later, and it's still going. And it's a light and inspiration to so many people. Lee just has a lot of energy and enthusiasm, and he's just extremely intellectual. And he's very passionate about what he is pursuing, as you can tell from our conversation. Also, special note, since we recorded this conversation with Lee the first week of September, Dr. Harold Hazlip has since passed away at the age of 92. We decided to leave that that portion in the episode as a tribute to Dr. Hazelup, his legacy, and the significance of that relationship and what he meant to Lee. So thank you for listening and joining us. You can continue to tune in to It Takes a Village on whatever podcast platform is convenient for you. While you're at it, feel free to subscribe so you'll be notified when we release future episodes. And our episode ending shout out goes to our very own Elisa Van Dyke. She's been here in a variety of roles at Healing Hands since 2006. She now serves as a vice president and oversees our marketing team and women of Hope Ministry. And Elisa just does a fabulous job. And she has had her hand in the podcast as well. And uh, we just appreciate her dedication and commitment to Healing Hands and how well she loves the people who we serve. So until next time, see ya. Na, 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 na.